Our scripture reader today is Mary Colley. She'll be reading Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Uh, In honor of God's word, uh, please stand. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, some language that uh, many, many, many churches around the world will be uh, soaking in today uh, is this phrase, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Uh, That is historic language that has blessed the church, that has helped the church, that uh, gives gives us a way in which we look in the rearview mirror and we recognize that Christ has died. Uh, we, we, We recognize that in this current moment, Christ has risen. And then we look forward to this recognition that Christ will uh, come again. And so as we, as we gather this morning and we open up our Bibles to Revelation 21, uh, if you are a, a, a regular part of our church family, I, I think it's right to say that these are our favorite verses. Uh, we, we reference them a lot. Uh, it's not uncommon for these verses to be the benediction at the end of our service. Uh, we love uh, these, these verses. We love these first verses of Revelation 21. They are a, a way in which they invite us uh, into this picture of what God is, uh, has done and is doing, what he will do. And so as we walk through this text today, uh, three things, the place, the people, and the point. So let's, uh, let's take a look at that. First, the, the place. Revelation 21, verse 1, as you heard just a moment ago, this is, this is John, uh, the Apostle John is the author of the book of Revelation, and um, if you've been here for the last few Sundays, you know we were in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and there were a number of letters that Jesus asked John to write down, to pass along to these churches, and so John has been penning this, this book, and it's full of incredible visions and symbolism and declarations about what is and what is coming. And as you come to chapter 21, uh, this is John, John giving us a, a personal testimony. John is telling us this, this, is, what, this is what was included in the vision. This is, this is what I saw. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You know, if you were to sit down and read the Bible from cover to cover, as you started reading through the Old Testament, uh, you would eventually start bumping into these promises, uh, these promises that indicated that a kingdom was coming, that this, this kingdom of God, 
This, this kingdom where God, in, in his glory, filled the earth. Where God and his, 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 uh, his, the Messiah would, would, would rule and reign. Where the, the king, the rightful king of the world, of the universe, of the cosmos, would sit on the throne. And so the Old Testament is, is full of these promises, full of these, these, uh, these, this anticipation of the kingdom of God on earth, of the king on the throne. But every hint of it, Throughout, throughout the story, throughout the Old Testament, every, every time that the people of God, the people of Israel, every time they think, they think it might come. They think, oh, here it is. Finally, the kingdom. Every hint, it ends up in disappointment. Maybe the most clear one was Solomon. God had made some promises to Solomon's father, to David. He had entered into a covenant with David. And there was this recognition that the way that God was going to be at work in the world was through the son of David. Well, David has a son. And his name is Solomon. And Solomon comes to the throne of Israel. And Israel is at the high point. Israel has more money than they know what to do with. They are, they are uh, the king of the hill. Their, their, their military is successful. They are not oppressed. They are, they are independent. They, they are, uh, the glory of God, it seems like, is shining bright. And now Solomon, the son of David, is the king. And you could imagine the people of Israel thinking, it's finally here. The kingdom, the king, the promised one. It's all arrived. But no, the story of Solomon uh, devolves and it ends in brokenness just like every other time throughout the Old Testament. And by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you would be rightful, it'd be a right response to be depressed. Uh, by the end of the Old Testament, the people of God are in shambles. They are in exile. Uh, they're discouraged. They have rejected every one of the words of the prophet. They do not turn back to God. They have lost uh, basically everything. And at the end of the Old Testament, uh, at least church history shows us that there's a, 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 we enter a period of 400 years where there's silence, where there's, there's no scripture written at all, where the prophets go quiet and where God does not speak. But then we have the New Testament. And the first four books of the New Testament, they're, they're each called Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And as we read those Gospels, we find out something right off the bat in those Gospels. That something has happened. Something that has shifted the landscape. It's, it's changed the story. And it is that Jesus has showed up. And when Jesus showed up, uh, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, the first thing that Mark has Jesus say, that he records Jesus saying is, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. That, that's what Mark says Jesus shows up talking about. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he brought the kingdom of God to the earth in a new way. Jesus' arrival signaled heaven breaking in in a new way. The eternal pouring into the temporal. Jesus' arrival is a new thing. It's a new thing, but it's not a full thing. You know what I'm saying? Jesus showed up and he said the kingdom is here. The kingdom has arrived. And yet he, the king himself, is rejected and tortured 
and killed. There's been a couple thousand years since that happened. And here we are in the year 2022. And while aspects of our world are absolutely incredible, the technological advancements, the advancements in medicine, and just the the ability for for our, our world to function with safety, food, some incredible things, it is still crystal clear that the world is broken. The world that we live in right now does not sound like the new kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. It does not sound like a world in which all things are right, where the king is on the throne and ruling in justice and righteousness. It doesn't feel like that at all. So what is going on? Well, if you were to jump to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, you find out in just those first verses of the Bible about the heaven and the earth, that God creates the heavens and the earth. And here we are in Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible. And John tells us about a new heaven and earth. And so in Genesis 1, we have heaven and earth. And in Revelation 21, we have heaven and earth. And you say, well, what, what, are, what is the heaven? What, what are the heavens and the earth? It, it's, it's a way of saying everything that God created. In the, in the Genesis account, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he fills them. He fills them with all kinds of, of different things. Birds and stars and plants and people. He, fill, he fills those spaces. Everything that God created. And John here says that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So in verse 1, he says right off the bat, I see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth, first earth had passed Away. What does it mean for those to have passed away? Well, it doesn't mean that they were deleted. It doesn't mean that they were eliminated. There's, there's too many other texts in the Bible that would contradict that understanding. What it seems to mean is that the new heaven and the new earth, which we could also call the new creation, it's best understood as the renewal and the transformation of the old heaven and earth into the kingdom of God. And so this, this old heaven and earth This old heaven and earth that was created in Genesis 1, something terrible happens to it. Just a couple chapters into the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, the first heaven and the first earth are infected with sin. Sin breaks in and vandalizes God's good world. And now all of a sudden, nothing is quite right. Everything is infected. Everything is broken. Everything uh, just seems to, to be a little sideways. And it it amplifies and it it, it spreads as the chapters of Genesis unfold. And now here is John in this revelation, in this vision, and he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And he recognizes that it's this heaven and this earth that was scarred by sin being completely remade, being transformed into this kingdom, this promised kingdom of the Old Testament. You know, Eugene Peterson uh, was a great pastor and scholar, and, and he, he said that new creation does not provide something other than what we have, but it does provide something more, namely completion. That this place, this, this vision that John sees of what is coming is everything made right. It's creation as it should be. 
It's not other than, but it's more than. It's the completion of it. It's the restoration of it. You know, Jesus was not lying when he said the kingdom is here. It's just that the kingdom was not complete. The kingdom was breaking in, but it was not complete. And theologians love to use the phrase, already, not yet. That the nature of the kingdom of God, when Jesus showed up, the kingdom was already here, but it wasn't yet full. Already, but not yet. Here, but not in full. And over these 2,000 years since Jesus' first coming, the world has been experiencing this reality of the kingdom of God being here in a certain way, but not being here fully. Uh, An example is given in verse 1. At the end of verse 1, it says, The sea was no more. Now, we live in northern Michigan, and I think there's a lot of people in this room that have a fondness for the sea. You like the lakes. You like the water. And if you hear that the new kingdoms and the new earth do not have water, there's no lakes, like especially where we live, this could be quite traumatic. So what, what, is, what does John mean when he says the sea was no more? Well, it doesn't mean that there's no water or that there's no lakes in, in the eternal kingdom. John is playing off this Hebrew idea that the sea was a place of, of chaos and a place of, of evil. It was a place that was unknown and scary. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's still true today. The, 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 uh, the, the, the great frontier of, of, you know, where's the next place to explore? It's the oceans. Man, like, read about the oceans or, or learn about the oceans. There's so much of our oceans, are, they are not explored. We, we don't know what's down there. We don't know what's going on in the, in the deepest parts of, of the ocean. And the Hebrews thought of, the, of, the play, of bodies of water. They were much more a desert people. And they thought of bodies of water, and they thought of them as, as places of chaos, places that were unknown, places that were evil. Uh, I still remember a few years ago being in the Holy Land, and we were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And our guide walked us through uh, the, the, uh, this understanding, the Hebrew understanding of water and bodies of water. And we're sitting on a boat, and the Sea of Galilee was pretty dark. You couldn't see down at all. And just, you know, the, our guide teaching us about what it would be like to be a fisherman on that water and to have the storms come through and to associate that with chaos and evil and unknown and danger. And then think about that. Think about what it would be for the disciples. They were scared of the storms, but even more scared of Jesus walking on that water. And then even more scared that Jesus stopped it all with just words. Peace be still. And you put those things together and you realize the Hebrews thought of the water as untamable, of chaos, evil, unknown. And then here's Jesus who calms it with his word. Well, what John's saying is, In the new creation, there's no more of that. There's no more chaos. There's no more evil. There's no more fear. The sea, in that sense, is no more. It's all new. New creation will be similar to the original creation, but perfect. You know, there's a a number of writers and philosophers throughout history that have recognized that humans have have what sometimes is called a, a, a blissful longing or a soul longing. And there's a lot of uh, authors that have uh, engaged with this. C.S. Lewis talked about it. Many others did too. Um, but the, the, what they're pointing at is they recognize that people, you and me, 
are, are longing for things that they never had. That it's a very natural condition of, the human, of, the, of, a, of a human being to, to long for a family that you never had, to long for a body that you never had, to long for a home that you never had, a beach that you never had, a career that you never had, money that you never had. For, for there to be something going on in your soul, inside of you, that is longing for something that you never had. We, we are longing for a world that we've never had. And C.S. Lewis uses this language, and he, he plays off of that, and he says that if, if you find yourself longing for something that you've never had, longing for something that's not actually part of this world, maybe that's evidence that you were designed for another world. Maybe all of that longing, that longing for something perfect, that longing for something so good, that longing for something that you've actually never had, longing for a world that you've never had, what is that pointing to? Well, John says, I got really good news. It's coming. It's coming. The whole thing. Heaven and earth. It's all going to be made into something that you've always longed for into something that, you, you, that you've wanted. He says, just wait. Like, I saw it. Jesus pulled back the curtain. I saw it. This is the place. This is what is coming. Well, what about the people? If this is a snapshot of the kingdom of God coming to fruition, for there to be a kingdom, there has to be people. In verse 3, it says, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, some translations, um, some manuscripts have the word people. They will be his people, and it's actually, they will be his peoples. There's, there's an S there. It's a plural, in a sense. And it's, an, it's a, somewhat of an invitation to a recognition of the, 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 the vastness of this people that God is gathering together. In other places, we read of every tongue in every tribe, you know, that, that the eternal kingdom is not going to be uh, free of ethnicity. Apparently, it's, it's going to be on full display, and we're going to experience it as we should, this, this beautiful diversity that's, that's united in, in Christ, and that we are now, all the peoples, gathered together, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, gathered together. There's indications that we're going to sing. There's going to be this incredible choir. And it's going to be quite a scene. And the people of God, are they are with him. He is with us. We are with him. In other words, the relationship with God is healed. That this thing that Jesus inaugurated when he showed up the first time, it, when it's brought to fruition, everything is right between God and man. Everything's restored. God dwells with them. And there with him. You know, when Jesus showed up, uh, John, the author of Revelation, in, John, in his gospel, he actually says that Jesus came and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, lived among us. And so John says when Jesus showed up, that's what Jesus did. Jesus showed up and he lived among the people. But in the eternal kingdom, in the new kingdom, in new creation, God is going to dwell with his people like it's never been before. Every tribe and tongue. Not just Adam and Eve, but an entire people, peoples, gathered together, dwelling with God. God with them, them with God. Everything right, everything healed. 
You know, if you think about the last seven weeks that, that we've uh, uh, gathered for Sunday worship, we, we walked through uh, the sections of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus wrote these letters uh, to specific churches 2,000 years ago. And as we walked through those short little letters where Jesus offers sometimes critique, sometimes encouragement to these, these little churches, we saw that quite a few of them were facing some serious hardship, facing some serious suffering. But we don't actually have to go all the way back to Revelation 2 and 3 to recognize that the people of God were suffering. You actually see it right here in verse 4. Look at verse 4. So he will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is the end of verse 3. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What does he have to wipe tears away for if there weren't any? What does he have to say the pain's gone if there wasn't any? Why does he say there's no more crying if there wasn't any? You know, John is looking at the condition of new creation, of the new kingdom, and he's saying, people of God, I know what you've endured. I, I, know, I know what you've walked through. I know what you've seen. You know, John is writing to a people who were about to experience more death and mourning and crying and pain than anybody in this room probably has ever seen or ever will see. Because at, at the end of the first century, the Roman emperor at that time, Domitian, he, he, he was the first emperor to begin widespread persecution of Christians. And it was terrible. Christians had their homes stolen, destroyed. They, they were sent to the arena to be torn to shreds by wild animals as the crowds watched and cheered. Christians were impaled on stakes. Christians were covered with pitch and then lit on fire. Christians were crucified by the hundreds and some accounts indicate by the thousands along the highways in and out of Rome so that people could see Christians dying degree by degree as they came and went from the city. That's what John's readers faced. That, that's the kind of stuff that they were enduring as this letter began to circulate. As, as, as Christians gathered around that part of the world began to read these visions from John, that's the stuff they're facing. And as John thinks about their, their situation and he recognizes all of, all of these categories, the mourning and the crying and the pain, as he thinks about all of those things, what does he give them to cope? This is what he gives them. He gives them the new heavens and the new earth. This is what he points to. He says, I know what you're going through, and it's terrible. I, I know what you're going to face, and it's going to be terrible. You're going to need some resources to endure it. Here, let me give you them. New heavens and new earth are coming. That, that, that's the resource. And guess what? It is clear from history. It worked. It worked. The people of God realized where the story of the world was headed. And they held tightly to it. As you read the stories of Christian suffering, what you see is Christian suffering with such peace and such serenity that you know, they sang hymns as the wild beasts attacked them. 
They openly and actively forgave the people who were killing them. And it was so significant that the more people killed them, the more the Christian movement grew. You know, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, he, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant by that was, every time they kill us, it amplifies the movement of God. Because the people that see Christians suffering, the people that see Christians dying, they look and they realize, those people have something. They have something that changes the way they navigate the world. What is it? And just like Peter said, they started getting asked questions about the hope that was in them. How do you survive this? How, do you, how does your people handle this? They had something on the inside. What did they have? They had this. It's often been referred to as a living hope or the blessed hope. You know, human beings are hope-shaped people. We are hope-shaped creatures. And the way we live is controlled by what we believe about the future. If you believe that this life is all there is, if you believe it's like, man, you get you know, 70, 80, 90 years, you better, you better live it up, YOLO. If that's what you believe, boy, it's going to impact the decisions that you make. It's going to impact the way you see your life. And the Christians in the first century responded to their suffering with incredible amount of hope. Another illustration, some of us have read Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, and she's one of, of many authors who have recounted the faithfulness of the, of the black church in America, of the African-American church in America. And she, 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 she just tracks a little bit of their faithfulness, of, of their history through tumultuous times. You know, in, in 1847, uh, an African-American scholar named Howard Thurman, uh, he, he gave a lecture at Harvard uh, on the, uh, on the uh, meaning of the, a Negro spiritual, on, on the songs that the African-American uh, people held so closely. And in his lecture, he responded to one of the great criticisms of the, of the Negro spirituals. And one of the great criticisms is that the African-American uh, spirituals, they're so otherworldly that they were so focused on references to heaven and judgment day and crowns and thorns and robes that you're going to get someday, that these, these African-American spirituals were so focused on those things, I mean, in other words, focused on the new heavens and the new earth, that what the conclusion seemed to be is that all that Christianity, all that stuff about heaven and resurrection and judgment, it, it made them docile. It made them submissive. They would have been better without it. But you want to know what, what, what Howard Thurman said? This, this is a paraphrase, but this, this is what he said. The facts have made it clear that this, that this faith that they held to, this sung faith, served to deepen the capacity of the slaves for endurance and their ability to absorb their suffering. It taught the people how to ride high in life how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as a raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all of its cruelty, could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation 
and to affirm a terrible right to live. You get what he's saying? He is saying that the slaves, even though they lived in an environment that was horribly cruel, because they knew about the new heavens and the new earth, because they knew about Judgment Day, because they knew eventually all their desires would be fulfilled and that nobody was going to get away with anything, that all the wrongdoing would be put down. Because they lived with that kind of hope, it actually enabled them to have a hope that their environment, with all of its cruelty, it couldn't crush it. It couldn't crush their hope. Why couldn't it crush it? Because it can't reach it. You see, that hope is in the future. That hope is out there. That, that hope was something that couldn't be crushed. It couldn't be attacked. They had this living hope. They had a blessed hope, just like those first century Christians and second century Christians who endured so much hardship. Now look, probably no one in this room is going to get thrown to lions, at least not while people cheer. Probably none of us are ever going to experience uh, the wickedness of uh, chattel slavery. But we do have things in our life, things that are quite heavy, that weigh us down, situations that are breaking our hearts. I said just a moment ago that over the course of the season of Lent, uh, sometimes it was like, I don't need to try to feel the brokenness of the world. It is confronting me. It is confronting me, like unavoidably confronting me. And just over the last few days, uh, a, a, a tragic story uh, that, that, uh, that just flooded into, into my life, into, into the life of some people in this church. Undeniable brokenness. Undeniable sorrow. Undeniable mourning. An undeniable reality that the world is not right. What I want us to know is this. It is a simple fact of history that people taking this living hope and taking it right into the center of their life has caused them to triumph over things like this. It's given them a perspective for how to endure things like this. Listen, it doesn't make things like this go away. It enables you to endure them. And when the truth of this hope, man, when it pierces you like that, when you realize it's true, that all the worst evil you can face here is not the end of the story, it's going to change you. Do you see that you need a living hope? Well, the people, the people of the kingdom, it's one of their markers. It's what they're known for. And God is the one who takes away every one of their tears. Well, what's the point? There's a place, the kingdom. There are people or peoples. Is there a king? Yeah, yeah, there's a king. You know, Jesus is the, is the center point of the entire story, all of this. The, the, the place of hope and the people of hope are only possible because of Jesus. And, and let me show you in verses 5 through 7 how, how this, is, this is hinted at. The cross and the resurrection. So first the cross. Jesus died for you so he could offer you the water of eternal life. Look, look at verse 6. In verse 6, uh, so verse 5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. You know, I said a second ago, John did not just write Revelation. He also wrote what we know as the Gospel of John. And in that Gospel, he records a, an account of Jesus being at a well with a woman whose life was a train wreck. She, she had made a mess of her life. And Jesus tells her that he can give her water so that she will never be thirsty again. Now, her immediate thought, which is completely understandable, is that he was talking about physical water. But you quickly find out he's not talking about physical water. He's talking about eternal life. That he can offer this woman the water of eternal life. That Jesus sees the need for a physical drink, and he doesn't deny that the human body needs physical water, but he's saying there's a water that you need that's more important. It's the kind of water that quenches your eternal thirst. A few years later, Jesus is on the cross. And one of the things that Jesus says as he's, as he's uh, in, in, the, in, in his crucifixion is, I thirst. And he doesn't just mean he's physically thirsty. He means his soul is thirsty. Why do we know that? Because Jesus also cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross... Jesus experienced unspeakable thirst so that you and I, so that he could offer you and I the spring of life without payment, it says here. He paid for it. He went through what he went through so that you could get it by grace alone as a gift for free without payment. The water that he offered the woman at the well, the figurative, eternal, spiritual water that her soul desperately needed, Jesus won that on the cross so that you can have it without payment. It's the, it's the water that our thirsty souls so desperately need. Do you believe that Jesus did that for you on the cross? Secondly, the resurrection. Jesus did not just die. And we gathered on Good Friday, and our Good Friday service is pretty heavy. It ends in silence, and we leave in silence. And we recognize a, a tomb that's been, a rock has been rolled over the face of it. And Jesus is dead inside that tomb. It's a heavy way to go into the weekend. Saturday is a rightfully heavy day. It's a day in between the death, but before the resurrection. Jesus, though, did not just die. What we gather here this morning for is to recognize that Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. That Jesus conquered death in order to make all things new. This is what we gather to celebrate. The tragedy of Good Friday being reversed. Look at verse 5. It says that he who is seated on the throne. It's, he's the king. He, he is resurrected. He has conquered sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies. And now he is on the throne. And this is what he says. Behold, and that word is like a command. He wants you to look at this. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus conquered the grave. And here in Revelation 21, we see him, the king with his people, in his kingdom, on his throne, keeping his promise to actually make all things new. You know, the point here is that Jesus sometimes is referred to as the first fruits. J Jesus is the beginning. He's newness of life. He has a new body. He's the first fruits. 
Jesus is the first indication. He's the first installment that everything else is going to be made new too. Jesus was made new, too, made new and he's going to make everything else new. It's what he does. It's the work that he's about. And my guy, Tim Keller, you know, he's kind of famous for saying that all of this, it's not consolation, it's restoration. In other words, it's not just some sort of comfort, it's recovery. J.R.R. Tolkien is trying to get at this idea when he says, is everything sad going to become untrue? C.S. Lewis uses the idea of time working backwards, of the curse being reversed. And you say, how in the world? How, how could that happen? How could everything sad become untrue? I don't know. But this is the hope that Christians cling to, is the promise that just like, how, how could Jesus conquer death? I don't know, but he did that. And the promises throughout the Bible are, are beauty coming from ashes. The story of renewal, of God making broken things, of, of God repairing broken things, of, of bringing dead things to life. It's what he does. Tim Keller has, has uh, suffered quite a bit recently. He's diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer, and uh, all indications are that he will, he will die from, uh, from that cancer, although right now he's, he's doing pretty well. But this is, this is what he said. He said, suffering will come into your life. When it comes and you face it with hope, there are only two things that can happen. It'll either make you a better person or it'll kill you, and then it'll make you a really better person. Now, if you're in the depth of it, if you're staring at the face of suffering, it might be hard to hear that. It might, been, it might be hard to, to hear laughter about that. And yet, this is, this is the blessed hope. This is the living hope. This is what the Christians who were, who were being persecuted and becoming martyrs, this is what they clung to. This is what the slaves clung to. This is what you and I are invited to cling to. The blessed hope, the living hope, the promise that everything actually really is going to be made new. That when Jesus, on this day, when he says, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. He will be my daughter. You hear that? He says the one who conquers will have this heritage. Throughout the book of Revelation, he talks about the conqueror, the victor. And he's constantly associating the victor with the one who has put their hope in Jesus. That that is the way for victory. That is the way to conquer, is to put your hope in Jesus. And here, at, no, almost at the very end of Revelation, Jesus himself says, the one who conquers, that's your heritage. That's what's coming. That's your inheritance. You want to know what's waiting for you? All things made new. One of my favorite ideas from C.S. Lewis is at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, when he says, at the end of this life, when all of our adventures are over, we are going to realize that this whole life was just the cover and the title page of a story that goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Listen, if you believe that that's what's coming, if you believe that the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, if you believe that that's what's been won for you, it changes the way you live your life. 
Let that pierce you deeply. As we come to the table, I want to invite you to ask yourself questions uh, regarding these two things. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross so that you could be rescued? And then do you see how Jesus' resurrection signifies the start of the renewal project that we get to be part of too? Our practice here is to get up and to go to one of the four stations uh, to take communion whenever you're ready. Uh, There are some prayers in the bulletin, some prayers that will be on the screen behind me. A couple minutes of music, uh, and the prayer team uh, will be in the back. Uh, Service and prayer team, if you please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this uh, beautiful, beautiful passage near the very end of the Bible. This declaration that this life is not all there is. That sometimes we look around and we recognize the suffering that is going on. Uh, maybe in our lives, maybe in our homes, in our uh, circle of relationships, maybe in our nation, maybe around the world, in Afghanistan or in Ukraine. God, the, the millions and millions of unknown stories. We thank you that this is, this is what you offer us. Not to stick our heads in the sand, not to wish it away, not to try to ignore it, but to actually be able to face it with a full recognition that the end of the story, that death is not the end of the story, that the suffering of this age, as Paul says in one point, is is light comparatively to what is coming. God, we need your help to have that kind of perspective. We need your help to put those kinds of glasses on to see the world. We, we, We need that to come from the inside out. God, would you, would you plant deep in us this blessed hope, this living hope? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.